We're going to be in the book of Galatians again, but we're racing through. We're in chapter 4 already. So chapter 4, verse 1, is where we're at. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for um, all that you do for us, God. We can't even begin to express to you how much you deserve and and how great you are. Uh, But Lord, we want to grow in just uh, understanding what you've done for us tonight. And Lord, I ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, please empty me of my thoughts and my um, whatever intentions I have that are not from you, God, and I just ask that you would fill me with exactly what you would have me to say. And God, I just I pray for all, everyone in here who has experienced hurt in their lives and experienced broken relationships and broken families. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would begin to heal some of those hurts. And uh, for those who have already experienced healing, I pray that they would learn more uh, and experience more of your healing and and be able to articulate what your healing is to those people who are in their life that are experiencing that hurt. So Lord, there's many things that we want you to do in us tonight and we're asking for you to do. Um, Lord, above all, we want to fall deeper in love with you. We want to grow in our love and in, in understanding your grace. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right. So, so I just love seeing all you guys here every Wednesday, learning about grace, learning about the new covenant, waging war on legalism as we've seen in this series in Galatians. Um, and we're, we're moving now into the very practical section of Galatians where he's, he's going to start to show you the practical side of everything that he's been talking about. And we've been making practical applications the whole way, so you may not notice a huge difference from what we've been talking about with the the application side, but Paul himself is is just really getting into the heart of the matter here. And that is the father-son relationship that we're supposed to have with God. And I know it's probably kind of weird for you girls and ladies to think of yourself as sons of God, but... That's how the Bible talks about it. And you can call yourself daughters. I don't, I don't care. That's fine with me. But, uh, um, but we're gonna, I'm going to use the word son as a general term for us tonight, okay? So there's a Spanish story of a father uh, and a son who had become estranged. Uh, this, the son ran away and the father set off to find him. And after several years of searching, um, he, he never found him. So the heart, the heart of the father was just longing for his son and aching for his son. And so in one last final desperate plea, he took out a uh, ad in the paper, in the Madrid newspaper. And the ad read like this. It said, Dear Paco, meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven and I love you. Your father. On that Saturday, when this father showed up, 800 Pacos were there (laughs) waiting for him, looking for the forgiveness and love from their fathers. I don't know if his was there or not. It didn't tell me in the story. But (laughs) in that story, just demonstrate that deep and powerful need in each one of our hearts for 
a connection with our fathers. Uh, for forgiveness and love. You know, so many of us have a twisted and broken view of fathers in general, and yet still, way down deep, there's this desire to know what it would be like to have a father. You know, we see movies with a strong father figure, and it, it makes us either angry or just sad, because we never had that. Um, and no matter how hard we may try to ignore it or deny it, you know, we feel incomplete without that strong, loving, authoritative and gentle father who treats us as a son or daughter and an heir to their kingdom, you could say. So I'm, I'm lucky because I had two dads. I had my dad and my mom got divorced when I was two. And they were both remarried by the time I was five. And they all got saved. So we were all friends, you know, basically. And uh, there was, I don't recall, like, arguments or any of that stuff. And it was really a, an awesome situation. So I had my dad, who um, got saved a little bit later, but, um, you know, he became a pastor. And so all my teenage years and young adult years, he was a pastor. And so we had this relationship where he was, he was a great dad. And then my stepfather, um, I spent a lot of time with him as well, and he was a pilot for United, and he he's just loves teaching, and so I had this different relationship with him, but he was still like a dad to me, and so I had kind of two dads, um, and it was kind of strange for me, but when people asked, well, what does your dad do? I said, well, I have one dad who's a pastor and a carpenter and another dad who's a pilot, um, and it was, it was a neat thing for me. I liked it, and there wasn't like competition. It was just God had redeemed that whole situation. Um, but, like, my wife grew up with never having ever met her father. And then she was adopted when she was, like, 11 and met and, and had an adopted dad after that. And he was, you know, that was that relationship. And so there's diff- everyone's got their different stories. How many of you never knew your dad? No one? How many of you had a, had a great relationship with your dad? How many of you had not a great relationship with your dad? It, you know, it's just, there's so many varieties of that um, and so much hurt and pain that can be involved with that. But that's what we're going to be talking tonight is this father-son relationship that God wants for us. So let's look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. And he says, Now I say that an heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is a master of all. Verse 2, but he is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage to the elements of the world. So let me ask you a simple question. What's the difference between a child and a slave? Think back in the day. Let's maybe not use the word slave. Let's use the word servant. And think of a rich person's house where you had a, a servant who was over everything and a, and a child who was the son of, of the master. Um, this section of Galatians is going to teach us the difference between, the gra- between grace and the law, which we've been studying very in-depth, right? We've been looking at the law and, and relating to God based on the law is really bad, but relating to God based on grace is really good. And we've been seeing all that. And uh, the, this portion of Galatians is going to teach us and contrast those two ideas 
by showing us a, basically a story of a child and a servant or a slave and the difference between the two. So, in a wealthy family, there was usually a slave or servant that took care of the master's child. So, the child was actually under the servant who was taking care of him. So, imagine the strife in that relationship when the child realizes that eventually they will own everything in the house and be the boss of that slave. Could you imagine, as a child, maybe he's like five or six, and they're starting to understand, okay, so I'm the son... And you're the slave, and so I'm going to be your boss someday? Ooh, you're going to get it for making me eat my Cheerios. You know, they, they would have this, you know, they might have this idea uh, or the strife or the struggle with their relationship, which um, kind of describes the, the relationship that Israel had with the law during the thousands of years that the law was over Israel. You see, it was always a strife and a struggle to have these rules because the rules didn't really care about you. They were just always standing there like like two big pieces of rock that never move, you know, which is what they were, right? They were written on rocks. You know, they were were kept there and it was hard to, um, to ever find real joy as, as the nation of Israel experienced. So in this illustration, the, the son or the child had less day-to-day freedom and authority than the servant did during that time. But this only would last as the child was outgrowing his foolishness of youth. You know, all those, all those foolish ideas. And at the appointed time, he becomes able to fully experience all that belongs to him as an heir. And so he says here, at the end of verse 3, he says, they were in bondage to the elements of the world. It's a really interesting term. The, the word is translated, what, what's really said there is the ABCs of the world. The ABCs of the world is what was holding them, and they were in bondage to the ABCs of the world. That's go, what's going on when, when the law has its its. It's over you when you're when you're trying to relate to God based on the laws and the, the Ten Commandments. You're in bondage to the ABCs of the world, and that that in our a better way to I think of it is the basic idea of how things work, or like karma, or you get what you earn, or you get what you deserve. That's the basic way the world looks at things, right? That's that's the very first thing you learn as a child is. If I disobey my dad, I get a spanking, right? If I, if I touch a hot stove, there are consequences for that action. That's the basic way the world works. That's the ABCs of the world. And Paul wants us to know that we are to grow out of this common way of thinking. That those things may be true, but there's a higher level of relationship that's above that that he's going to tell us about. And we're so we're to grow out of that and into the amazing new covenant of grace. It's it's a higher way of thinking. It's something that you can't understand right at the beginning, and that's why you're under the law. Cuz the law is 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 good at keeping you safe. It's good at telling you don't kill people because it's not right. But when the fullness of time comes, then a better and a new way comes where God gives everything as we believe in him. 
David Guzak says, Paul tells the Galatians to go beyond this ABCs of the universe and into an understanding of God's grace. Grace contradicts this ABCs of the universe because under grace, God does not deal with us based on the basis of what we deserve. Our good cannot justify us under grace. Our bad need not condemn us either. God's blessing and favor is given on a principle completely apart from the ABCs of the universe. His blessing and favor is given for reasons that are completely in him and nothing to do with us. So it's a different way of thinking. But false teaching is according to these elementary principles. Turn over to Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. It's like just a couple pages over to the right. Keep your finger or your bookmark over there. Galatians will be right back. But in Colossians chapter 2, it says that that false teaching is according to these elementary principles or the ABCs of the universe or man's way of looking at things and not according to Jesus. So look at chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says here, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So we have to get it into our mind that the way the world looks at things and the way we grew up thinking is contrary or against Jesus. It's not the way he does things. The you do something bad, you get a spanking model doesn't work. And the you do something good and you get a reward model also does not work. That's not how God works. It has to be a different way than that. That's what grace is. It's different than that. So that's something we have to put aside, set aside this way of thinking. And he describes it here as the tradition of men and above that, philosophy and empty deceit. There's so many philosophers in the world. There's so many philosophies in the world and they're all based on human minds, uh, human ideas and traditions of men or man's philosophy on how things should be. Oh, it should be. If you keep the Ten Commandments, you go to heaven. That's, that's, a, that's an idea we can wrap our brains around. And so you have whole churches that that's what they teach. And what are they doing? They're actually, it says here, they're fighting against Jesus. They're fighting against Jesus. Why would you be a church and want to fight against Jesus? Because it's easier. Because it's easier. It's easier to just tell people, keep these ten rules. And don't wear pants. Girls. It's so much easier to say, cut your hair. What's it easier than? It's easier than Jesus. Because having a relationship with Jesus is scary sometimes. It can feel scary. It can feel intimidating because Jesus sees everything. But yet, as we read the word and we see that, that being in a relationship with Jesus frees us from these rules, 
then we're kind of like floating in the water. We have nothing to grab onto. And it's designed that way. Because if Jesus is the only thing you have to grab onto, what are you going to grab onto? Jesus. That's the design of this. The great and wonderful design of the new covenant is that it's all about Jesus. Not about what you do. It's all about Jesus. Oh, but I had a terrible day. That's okay. Jesus died for you. Oh, but I had a great day. Well, Jesus died for you still. And it wasn't perfect. Oh, but I need to improve. That's great because Jesus is all about Jesus. Look at verse 20 in Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, just a few verses down. He says, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the, what? Basic principles of the world. Again, it's that term, that ABCs of the world. Why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations, such as do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using. So we've read this verse many times before, but I wanted to bring it to you again and show you that it says it's, a, it's these basic principles of the world, these ABCs of the way humans think that Jesus says, we died with Jesus. We died to this way of thinking. We died to it. Well, when did we die to it? When did we die to it? When you made a decision that Jesus' death on the cross was enough for you. In that moment, you accepted Jesus' free gift of eternal life. You died to the basic principles of the world, that, that worldly system and human way of thinking of you're going to get what you deserve. You died to it. And the next day, you probably forgot. <laughs> and you were like, okay, now I've got to try hard to live and be a good Christian and be a good person. And we, we forget so easily. Almost every day. We forget. And we start to go back. Oh, i got to start trying hard again. Well, we died to that. we got to remember that. And you know, that's why we take communion. What are we supposed to do when we, when we take communion? The first thing you do is you, you take the bread, right? And you put it in your mouth and you chew it up. And what do you think about? You think about Jesus' body being broken and him dying for you. And you picture yourself dying with him. My, my way of thinking dies there when I take communion. Because communion shouldn't work. But it does. Someone dying 2,000 years ago shouldn't work for everything I need. But it does. And that's why we take communion. And because it was Jesus it worked. Because it was Jesus. It's the only reason why it works. A lot of other people were crucified 2,000 years ago. A lot. There was two other people right by Jesus. But we don't remember them when we take communion, do we? Nobody even knows their names. They're just thief one and thief two. That's it. And so we remember his death. We remember that we died with him in that place. And then we have that wine, that, the grape juice or whatever you use. And, you, and then that is the, the new covenant in his blood that is given to us. So, anyway, in Colossians 2.8, he says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through... Well, we just read that. Um, so, in, in verse 8, it did say that we can be cheated. It's against Christ. And then verse 20, 
it says um, that it was the basic principles of the world that we were we were um, we died to. Um, so we're not living by the rules of this world any any longer. We're re- living by the rules of heaven, just like Jesus said in John seventeen sixteen. He said. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So the way the world looks at things is is foreign to us. And so this brings us all back around to the end of verse 20 there, that when we subject ourselves to regulations, which is bringing us all the way back around bondage to the elementary principles of the world. Go back to Galatians. In verse 3, it says that we, we, they were in bondage to the elementary, elementary principles of the world. What are those elementary principles? If you could draw an arrow to this verse 3 all the way to Colossians 20 over four pages or whatever, that would be an awesome thing to do because one describes what the other one is. The basic principles of the world are don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. Right? Don't touch that. Wow. That's what you do when a, when a child is going to touch something, Right? Don't touch that. Don't taste that. Whoa. Don't handle that. These are the basic principles of the world. But yet, that is what we've died to. So, back in Galatians, chapter 4, verse 4, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. So God sent his son, born of a woman, which means he was completely human, and he had to be human in order to redeem us here, it says, or purchase us back. I like to tell this story, especially to my kids, okay? It was like this. Have you ever, when I was a kid, I liked to burn ants with a magnifying glass. You, you ever, who's done that? Great fun, okay? <laughs> if you haven't done it, you should try um, Just kidding. But I used to do that. And then I started to think about Jesus, and I had a perfect illustration for this, that why Jesus was had to be born of that. So I pictured myself trying to tell these ants that there was going to be a flood coming. Little did they know I was going to bring the flood and dump water on them, but that's be, not part of the story. But... If I had a desire, if I really loved these ants, let's say I created them, and I really loved them, and I tried to tell them, ants, little ants, there is going to be a flood. You guys need to follow this stick I have placed here in order to be saved. Would they listen to me? No, because ants don't speak English. It just doesn't work that way. So... I tell my kids, and I, I've thought about this a lot, as you can tell. I would actually have to become an ant and, and speak their language, which is like antish or something. And I would have to tell them, this is the way to be saved. And I would have like 12 ants that really liked me, and they'd follow me around in that little line. But then all the other ants would say, we don't believe you. We love our little ant hill in the back of Sean's backyard. We don't believe that there's going to be a, a flood of gasoline coming on us soon. <laughs> and I'd be like, no, really, 
but I love you and I want you to be saved. And they're like, we don't like you. And so they would nail me on an ant stick and kill me. That's the story I tell to my kids to explain why Jesus had to be born a human. It's because God had to give us that perfect communication of who he is and his plan for the world of how to be saved. And so and also to provide the sacrifice. But so he was born a woman. Now you'll never think about ants the same way. I know ever again you've been defiled. Under the law, he says, he had the power to live that perfect life according to the law. And think about this. He was born under the law. But what is the law? The law is simply a picture of him. A picture of Jesus. So let me ask you this. Was it difficult for Jesus to keep the law? Was it difficult for him? No. Why? Because he was just being himself. He is the picture. The law is the picture of the law. He is the perfect fulfillment of the law. So him coming and fulfilling the law that we think in our mind, whoa, so hard for him to fulfill the law. No, it wasn't. It wasn't hard for him at all. The hard part for him was watching a person die. That's when he wept, right? That's when he cried, was seeing someone reject him. Reject this message of love. That was the part that was hard. Keeping the law. That was just him being himself. So it says, he did all this. He was born of a woman under the law that we might receive adoption of sons. And he did, beginning of verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. So the word redemption, I wanted to paint a little picture for you guys. This is a story of the boy who lost his boat. Tom was a little boy carried his new boat to the edge of a river. He carefully placed it in the water and slowly let out the stream. How smoothly the boat sailed. Tom sat in the warm sunshine, admiring the little boat that he had built. Suddenly, a strong current caught the boat. Tom tried to pull it back to the shore, but the stream broke. The little boat raced downstream. Tom ran along the sandy shore as fast as he could. But the little boat soon slipped out of sight. All afternoon he searched for the boat. Finally, when it was too dark to look any longer, Tom sadly went home. A few days later, on the way home from school, Tom spotted a boat just like his in a window store. When he got closer, he could see. Sure enough, it was his boat. So Tom hurried to the store manager. Sir, that's my boat in your window. I made it. Sorry, son, but someone else brought it in this morning. If you want it, you'll have to buy it for one dollar. Tom ran home and counted all his money. Exactly one dollar. When he reached the store, he rushed to the counter. Here's the money for my boat. As he left the store, Tom hugged his boat and said, Now you're twice mine. First I made you, and now I bought you. That is an awesome story that teaches us what redemption is, to be redeemed. Because Jesus made us, right? But then we were lost, and he bought us after he made us. I just love that story. So verse 6, 
And because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So wait a minute. Are you telling me that you get everything you're trying to get by obeying the law just by being adopted by God? Does that mean that we just stop trying to keep the law? Is that what that means? Let me answer that with a story. Another story. Sorry, I'm in a storytelling mood tonight. Not really a story. But when two young people are in love, it's really disgusting. I mean, amazing to watch. I see you guys here. You're so in love. He's got his arm around you. He's got big smiles on both your faces. So, wait till you have kids. Just kidding. No one ever tells them the rules of how to make the other person happy or how to express their love. No one ever tells them the rules of how to be in love. They just enjoy being in love, right? Is that basically how it works? All right. They act in a loving way because they are in love. Their heart gives them direction. There's no checklist of how to be in love. No one ever saw a test in elementary school. Number one, what are the rules of falling in love? Buy flowers. Buy chocolates. That would work for some people. Buy corn dogs. It doesn't work for other people. It would work for me. But But I also, as I was thinking about this, I did find these rules of how not to fall in love. Would you like to hear them? Never look at a sunset with the object of your desire. Got to be careful for that. Never look at the stars with the object of your desire. Never drink one or two glasses of champagne with the object of your desire. Avoid the music of an acoustic guitar whilst with the object of your desire. Never use candles. Always keep at least a meter away from the object of your desire. Never get close to them. Never exchange mixtapes for the object of your desire. That's actually on the internet. I found this list of how not to fall in love. But does that work? No. Because if you fall in love, it's probably some goofy thing. Always in the movie, some guy like makes something out of a piece of trash and she's like, oh, it's so beautiful, and they fall in love. There's always some different way to it. You never see this question on the test of how of how love works. What are the results of falling in love? You know, why are people so afraid of love? Because it makes you vulnerable. It, open up, it opens up your heart to the deepest levels. You know, they're worried that you get stuck in a prison of a relationship for the rest of your life. But that's not how the Princess Bride ended. He didn't say, and they were stuck in this relationship forever. Who loves Princess Bride? One of the top movies of all time, right? And it ends with a beautiful kiss and a story, an ending of what? And they lived happily ever after, right? The end. That's how love works. That's how love is supposed to go. But people 
have this idea of love that they would write a list of how not to fall in love. A checklist. Make sure you do these things to not fall in love. So, the question I asked you was, does that mean that we just stop trying to keep the law? This is what makes grace so much superior to the law. And I love this. Because we don't have to try to figure out how to please our Father. We just fall in love with Him. And obedience is the natural outcome. It's really all about loving God. It's really all about your relationship with Him. You love God with all your heart. And then you do whatever you want. Really, you do whatever you want if you love God with all your heart. But that's so scary. What if someone... But we get this idea. We, we don't believe in love. We don't believe in the power of love. And that's what puts that fear in us of, oh no, i got to surround myself with rules. i got to have this, this foundation of rules and to keep me from doing something wrong. When in fact, those are keeping you from just experiencing love the way that God wants you to experience it. This is amazing. This is life-changing. Watchman Nee tells a a new convert who came in when deep distress to to see him, uh, and the convert said, no matter how much I pray, no matter how hard I try, I simply cannot seem to be faithful to my Lord. I think I'm losing my salvation. Me said, Do you see this dog here? He is my dog. He is house trained. He never makes a mess. He is obedient. He is a pure delight to me. Out in the kitchen, I have a son, a baby boy. He makes a mess, he throws his food around, he fouls in his clothes, he's a total mess. But who is going to inherit my kingdom? Not my dog, my son, my heir. You are Jesus Christ's heir because it is for you that he died. We are Christ's heirs, not through our perfection, but by means of his grace. So verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent forth his, the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So instead of us trying to keep the law to please God and to, and to understand our relationship with God and to relate to God, we just focus on loving Him. Okay, I got that. I got that. But how does that work? How does it work? And he tells us how it works right here. He sends his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts. He sent his son that we may have the status of sonship, but he sent his spirit that we may have the experience of it, the experience of sonship. I'm going to read Romans 8.15 to you guys. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness in our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together with him. 
So again, and we talked about this in the very second Bible study that we had, but fear is not the result of love-based relationship with God. Fear is the result of legalism and the law. When we have the spirit inside us that cries out, Abba, Father, Abba was the word for Papa. It was the intimate term that a child would use for his daddy. And that's, it says, what we get in our hearts with God. Is there any fear when a child is saying, Daddy? Is that a scary thing to anyone? That's pretty much the most unscary words in the world. Papa or Daddy. So, there is no fear when we approach God as a father. It's, it, when we communicate with him, it's free, it's easy, there's nothing to be afraid of. We are children, not slaves. Many times, though, I fear intimacy with God. And you might too. And every time, it's because legalism has crept into my heart. Every time. This is what the, the terrible, wicked, evil part of legalism is. It keeps us away from God. When God has destroyed that way of relating to Him, and He's just brought us love. He's just brought us love. And every time I fear intimacy with God, I feel like He sees the sin I just did. He sees it. So He's got to be mad at me, right? He's got to be mad at me, right? Here's my question. Is God ever mad at you? Is God allowed to be mad at you? Do you think he is? Let me answer it this way. No. God will never be mad at you. Why? Doesn't sin make him angry? Sure it does. Doesn't he... he doesn't sin bring death? Yes, sin brings death. So why is God never mad at me when I sin? Because God already got mad at Jesus for you. It's already done. And so, can God legally or righteously get mad twice for the same thing? Can he do that? No. He can't. It's impossible. He, it says in the word, it would be unrighteous for him to do that. So, my sin is no longer a barrier between my relationship with God. I just sinned, and so I come now to God's presence, and I say, God, I'm sorry, and I do this thing called repent. Which means just come back to him and say, God, I love you, and I don't know why I did that. Would you please help me? And he will. That's what's so awesome about this. I have a, a little book here. I'm going to read to you this, uh, this devotional that really explains God's heart in this. Uh, this is from the book called Come Away, My Beloved. And uh, it's like a devotional book, but it's written from God's perspective. It's like letters from God to you guys, but it takes a biblical way of looking at it. So, great book. If you ever want to read it, pick it up, find it. It's awesome. Um, so this, this little letter is called, I Anticipate Thy Dependence Upon Me. And this is written in Old King James type English, so I'm going to read it like that just because it makes it sound cool. Okay? 
O my son, give me thy heart, for out of it are the issues of life. For I say unto thee, my hand is upon thee, and I will keep thee in all places whithersoever thou goest. Yea, I am thy God, and I am thy Father, and I shall care for thee and provide for thee according to all you need. Yea, and I will be at thy side, ready to help thee whenever you shall call upon me. I am not unmindful of any of thy needs, and my concern is for thee. You do not need to carry thine own load, for I will be happy to help thee carry it, and also bear thee up as well. Thou dost not walk alone, nor meet any situation alone, for I am with thee, and I will give thee wisdom, and I will give thee strength, and my blessing shall be upon thee. Only keep thy heart set upon me, and thine affections on things above, for I cannot bless thee unless you ask me, and I cannot answer you if you do not call, and I cannot minister to thee except thou come to me. Do not wait to feel more worthy, For no man is worthy of my blessings. My grace bypasses all thy shortcomings, and I give to my children because they ask of me and because I love them, and I do not love one more than another. I give most liberally to those who ask the most of me, for I love to have thee depend upon me. This is why my spirit cries within me, Abba, Father. As thy father, I anticipate thy dependence upon me. Thou mayest by maturity outgrow thy dependence upon human parents, but as my child you shall never outgrow the spiritual sonship, nor shall I ever cast thee upon thine own resources, even when thou shalt thyself come into this position of father in human relationship. Thou shalt then appreciate even more fully my feelings toward thee, For thou shalt know by thine own human experience the love of a father and the desire to care for and provide and know and ye shall know more fully how much I love thee and how ready I am to help thee and how available I am to counsel with thee and to give thee support. Heaven's resources are at thy command and thou needest never to want so long as I am thy shepherd. Think not in thy heart that since I know all about thee, that you don't need to tell me. It is true that I know, but you need to tell me so that in the telling you may experience the release of an open heart and the fellowship of a friend. For as you open your heart to me, I will come to thee. And as you speak to me, I will speak to you. And as you reveal yourself to me, I will reveal myself to you. This is the law of life. There must be an action to bring reaction. There must be a question to bring an answer. There must be an expression of love and confidence on the part of one person to arouse a corresponding response to another person. Never presume upon my presence. Never assume that knowing thy need I will automatically supply. Ask, and it will be given. Call upon me, and I will answer. Tell me that you love me, and I will make thy heart to know in a very real way my love for thee and my nearness, and thou shalt never feel alone. Welcome me into your heart. The more, my, the more you sense my presence within you, the more you shall feel at home, no matter where you may be. 
forget anything else, but never forget this. That's an awesome description of what God is after. He isn't after a bunch of people who are keeping the Ten Commandments. Because that never worked. He's after people who love him, who will open their hearts to him and ask him. And he'll give you obedience to the Ten Commandments. That's like nothing to him. He can make you obedient, give you victory over sin. That's no big deal to him. What is a big deal to him is us coming to him and being in love with him. He's a million times more concerned with you just opening your word and spending some time with him and growing in your love with him than he is about whether you screwed up today or not. Because he paid for that already. He's cleared that out of the way. There's nothing that stands in the way. Do you get it? Is it clear? I I hope it becomes more clear in my heart. Tonight, tomorrow, every day, I hope I fall more in love with Jesus. And if I don't, you guys can slap me upside the head and say, just fall more in love with Jesus, man. Please. Jesus, we love you. We have a we have a Holy Spirit inside us that cries out, Abba, Father. Lord, there's no way we deserve to be your son. And as we studied last week, God, we become just as much a son as you are, legally standing in, in the presence of God as his son. And that's just impossible. It's just crazy. But Lord, if that's the way you want to do things, then we will accept it, Father. We, will, we want to turn away and we want to die to those basic principles of the world, those ABCs of the universe, those human ways of thinking that we need to earn your blessing and that you're mad at us when we fail. And God, we want to be free to just be that doting couple that's in love and just be that with you. Lord, I pray that we would all this week go and read the Song of Solomon and, and see how your affection for us is about love. And you care about spending time with us and about pleasing us and about being affectionate to us. God, I just pray that we're transformed by your love. In your name we pray. Amen.